morning, Friendship Church. My name is uh, Jeremy Johnson. If you don't know me, I used to be the middle school pastor here, and I've transitioned into a new role at Bethany Global University of Missions, where I uh, direct the lead program, lead venture, uh, leadership evangelism, apologetics, discipleship, for specifically 18, 19-year-olds that don't know what they want to do yet. Um, so they have that year to grow deeper in their faith, to know Jesus more, and to be able to discern uh, more accurately what they actually want to do uh, before they just jump into uh, college because they're supposed to, and you know what I mean, and finding their place in a place where they're not sure that they made the right decision. So it gives them a year to really prioritize, number one, their identity in Christ, and number two, the specific calling they were created for. It gives them opportunity to slow down for a year and go, what did God actually make me for? What's really in my heart? What's my desires? Um, and what did he create me for? And so I'm going to be doing that as well as teaching as a professor a few classes um, at the four-year university accredited uh, Bethany Global University admission. So uh, check this quick video out about the history of Bethany. Bethany started in 1945 with five families and a vision. Their vision? To train, send, and support 100 missionaries. These five families sold their homes, pooled their money together, and purchased a large residence in Minneapolis that they called Bethany House, after Jesus' place of retreat. Living in this community enabled them to focus their time, energy, and resources towards fulfilling the task of world missions. This is the heart of Bethany. Over time, our community grew, but the purpose remained the same. Bethany helps you thrive in missions. From recruiting and training to sending and supporting, Bethany comes alongside people from all walks of life to help them fulfill their part of reaching the unreached and transforming lives and nations for Christ. Today, Bethany has a path for nearly every call and category of missions, whether you are called to grow, start, lead, partner, or support the cause of missions in the world. Throughout its 70-year history, Bethany's mission has remained the same, and its vision for the future remains clear and hopeful. Bethany helps you thrive in missions, so you can take the church where it's not. There it is. So I see that we have the handsome stallion Kevin Ray here, whose roots go back to Bethany. <laughs> We've got people like Paul Madison, who was a Bethany uh, guy. We have uh, Mark Allawine, uh, who was a Bethany alumni. We have um, uh, the Menanes, who were missionaries through uh, Bethany. The, the singers, Nikki Brandenburg's mom and dad, were connected to Bethany. So Bethany's connections to friendship go way back. And so I'm excited to continue that. So if you know of anybody that needs a gap year program, an opportunity to taste missions, taste a little bit what college might be, but mostly grow deep in their faith and know their calling on their life. Uh, that's what Bethany is for. That's what this gap year program will be for. Will you pray with me before we open God's word? Uh, Jesus, thank you so much for your word. It's living, it's active, sharper than any double-edged sword. So we can live before the eyes of him for whom we will give an account. And Jesus, we thank you that you have, as our high priest, you've passed through the heavens and taken your seat at the right hand of the Father. And you overcame every temptation so that you can come to our aid as a high priest. 
And we can come boldly to the throne of grace in our time of need for mercy and grace. And we can ask you for wisdom and you won't reproach us. You are the Father of lights who gives every good and perfect gift for us to overcome any temptation and to come through approved through any trial, to bear fruit by abiding in you. So God, I pray today that by your Spirit, you would wash across this room and renew the perspective of what it means to live a life pleasing to you as we pilgrim through this wilderness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So David wrote the psalm, Psalm 63, when he was in the Judean wilderness. And likely he wrote this psalm when he was fleeing from Saul in 1 Samuel 23 and 24. And so David, out of earnest desire, um, you know, pressed in through the trials of being chased by Saul. God had called David to be king and anointed him. But the waiting period, as God gives to his messengers and to his servants, was undergoing for David. And it wasn't yet time for him to reign as the king, and so he was going through some tests. And in the midst of these tests, his history of the secret place on the hills, shepherding sheep, looking at God through his stars, praying, seeking the Lord, listening to his voice, he had cultivated an awareness of God. He had cultivated a intimacy with God that sustained him through man's opposition and through the trials of Saul. Uh, David could have been tempted to exalt himself and, and take Saul out, and instead he leaned into the Lord and did not get offended and did not uh, use his own flesh to retaliate. And so in the midst of that, David writes a psalm where he cries from the depths of his heart what he desires in the midst of this trial in the, in the Judean wilderness. Would you read Psalm 63 with me? O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary Beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I'll bless you as long as I live in your name. I'll lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night can't get you off of my mind, is what David is saying. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I'll sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They'll be given over to the power of the sword. They'll be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Wow, look at how David postures his heart before God. This was a cultivated habit for the shepherd boy who's becoming a king. He would look to God in all circumstances, and not just moderately, not just, slow, not just simply uh, um, loosely, but passionately and earnestly, we see David practicing 
communion with God. What's he say? Earnestly I seek you. I long for you. I thirst for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I long to see you. I know that your love is better than life. I've experienced it. I've experienced your love that is better than life. Irenaeus, the church father that wrote a book called Against Heresies, in the time where the early church was creating false Jesuses through their doctrine, uh, making Jesus not as much God or not as much man, and therefore twisting the gospel, uh, heresies were were growing, and that's why the creeds came in, where... uh, the apostles and the church councils would write out, no, this is what we believe. We've always believed, handed down from Jesus, and the apostles and the scriptures declare this to be true about Jesus, and we cannot budge on this. This is the center of our faith. This is the foundation of the actual truth. And so Irenaeus passionately wrote against heresies, and in his book Against Heresies, he had a section where he started to write about how when we see God, we have a clear vision of who he is, from the scriptures and from experience of knowing the living God, that something happens inside of us and we learn that the glory of God or the design of God is that mankind be fully alive. And it's the very giving of glory to God with our life that makes us come fully alive in the design that we're called to live in. And so anything that opposes that is sin. And so whatever cuts off fellowship with God is sin. When we're not satisfied as with fat food with God, it reveals, it indicates that we have a sin issue going on. When, when we don't have a deep hunger for God, it's an indicator that there's an appetite problem, that we're consuming too much of the world that sullies the water, that that dumbs down the the concentration of our faith and our satisfaction in God, and it's an indicator that we're to cry out in repentance for God to restore our first love and to set our desires rightly. So Irenaeus said that man fully alive is the glory of God. The glory of God is man fully alive. The shorter Westminster Catechism says this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Well, uh, John Piper simplified it even more. The call of the believer is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. This is the center of our faith, is that fellowship with God is so rich and so intimate, so satisfying, so liberating, so powerful, that other desires get lower and lower compared to this ultimate desire that we have in our life. And this is why C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, We need to understand that our God does not think that our desires are too low or too high. He thinks our desires are too low. He says, We play around with drink and sex and other desires and find ourselves content to play with mud pies, not knowing what it means to have a holiday by the sea. And so he's using that language to describe the difference between the way we compromise in our life and live for silly things and the great calling that we have in our life from God that he set in place, this this longing for something greater. He put eternity in our hearts. We can't find out the end of that, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He put eternity in our hearts. And that all goes back to the garden. When God created 
Adam and Eve. He put Adam in the garden to cultivate it. God planted the garden, and he put trees in place that are both enjoyable to look at, it says, in Genesis chapter 2, and also food that's desirable (laughs) and satisfying. He placed in the garden everything they needed, and God walked among them in the cool of the day. He dwelt in the garden temple with Adam and Eve, and he'd walk with them in the cool of the day. Well, when that fellowship was broken immediately, shame and Uh, Lack of accountability and hiding and excuses and blame shifting was unleashed. And now uh, the thing came apart at the seams. And fellowship with God is something that we have to be drawn to. We have to cultivate. We have to find again. You know, we're born of his spirit to gain new desires so that we sow to the spirit and not to the flesh and reap eternal life. So the Garden of Eden was this picture of the perfect paradise. And that Garden of Eden setting is the deepest longing in our human heart. Paradise with God. Unveiled intimacy with Him. Complete joy. No curse. Childlike trust. And perfect relationships with each other. Vertical to God and horizontal to each other. We long for that day. And that's why our call is to be sanctified or set apart by loving God with our whole heart and loving our neighbor as ourself, which includes our enemy, so that there's no one outside of the scope of the process of God making us like him. So that it demands that our whole life be about Christ, as Bonhoeffer would say, or as St. Patrick said, Christ within, Christ around, Christ before, Christ behind. Everything is about Christ, the aroma of Christ coming off our life, from life to life or death to death, that the gospel would go forth and people can respond. And so the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And so what we see is that David wrote this psalm, as we said, in the wilderness of Judea, and his big point of crisis was Saul. So his greatest crisis left him with the the built-up results of his faith in God, this time he'd spent like oil or like gold that he'd found in the secret place with the Lord was there as a resource for him to react by looking up to God when the trials and the offenses came around him from other people. Rather than looking around and pointing the finger and, and getting bitter, David looked up and said, God, this is challenging. I long for you. I'm earnest to seek you. I've seen who you are. I will leave judgment to you as the psalm closes. This is what David is declaring in this psalm. So he's talking about earnestness, thirst, fainting, a dry and weary land where there's no water. And then he remembers what they had in the nation of Israel in their tabernacle in the middle of their camp. They had the Ark of the Covenant where God's glory would come down on the mercy seat. And the people would behold that God was in the camp. He had promised to them in Leviticus 26 that he'd walk among them in their camp, echoing him walking among Eden, right? So God's plan from the get-go was to restore humanity to fellowship with God. Though it would be through war and famine and drought and through the wilderness of this age by which we're pilgrims, longing for, looking to the day when the age to come splits, breaks in to this age, splits the sky, and the transformation of the world as we know it, God makes all things new. That's what we look for. 
We long for the day when he makes all things new. And so what we need to understand is that when David's talking about thirst and hunger, we have to go back to his culture. And so back in that culture, in that day, in that age, in that time frame, the Middle East, obviously it's a more arid climate. And so there's a tendency for sun-scorching days for long periods of time, which would lead to drought, and therefore crops would suffer, and it would lead to famine. And if you didn't know where to get water, you'd have a shortage of water. If you didn't get to the well, you would have a shortage of water for a while. You couldn't really keep water. It would grow bad because you didn't have a refrigerator, right? And so you could be at a place in your house where you didn't have food and water and there's a drought and famine going on. And on top of that, um, your house is built with organic material, uh, not the kind of perfect insulation and beautiful carpentry work that Kevin Ray can do. Uh, he loves when I talk about him. I'm going to keep talking about Kevin. So anyway, uh, the expertise of Kevin's work <laughs> is not what they had in the Middle East. They only had what they could work with. So there were tiny little holes in the walls of the buildings so sand could get through. So picture yourself thirsty without water, hungry without food, no hope of seeing crops come in for, for food, and you're hungering and you're thirsting. This is the kind of hunger that David is displaying in the wilderness. And this is what Jesus used as a word picture in the Sermon on the Mount where it began in the Beatitudes. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Or blessed are you who hunger now, it says in Luke's version of the Beatitudes. Woe to you who are satisfied now. That's the contrast. So we can see it's this two-age perspective. In this age, we're in a wilderness. We're longing for that age where righteousness dwells, where all the fulfillment of our longest desires are fulfilled that God put in us to know him and to know no curse. And so our goal in this life is to long for God, to keep a cultivated hunger for God that doesn't get uh, sullied by the world. And, and deeper than a hunger, you know, is an appetite, Right? We build up an appetite for the kinds of things that we want to eat. How many have a problem with sugar? Yep, right? And some of us have a back and forth problem with sugar. Okay, I'm going to stop eating sugar, and then we get introduced to sugar again. And once you start, you can't stop. And, you know, we get this palate for sugar. We get this appetite for sugar. We get this rush from sugar. And it's not good for our bodies, right? Um, but vegetables are supposed to clean our body where sugar kind of sludges our immune system, right? does the opposite. But we all know that it's possible to like kale, even though some of you are in the, world, in the room right now going, are you kidding me? I've learned that lemon or olive oil, lemon juice or olive oil makes kale great. I've learned to like kale. It took a long time. But see, there are things that we don't like naturally about organic, healthy vegetables that God's created. And we, we desire the more comforting, processed, sugar-filled, bread-filled, things that taste good and feel good and go good with our coffee, right? And so the thing about our temptation to not hunger for God or to lose that deep awareness of our hunger for God is subtle worldly things. A little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit more time on Facebook, a little bit less time praying, a little bit more... Um, just vegging at the TV and a little bit less intentional worship time on your own and, and whatever it may be or hearing different um, angry 
perspectives over and over and over on a radio show or from a friend who's very critical. The more you hear those things, they come in your ear and your eyes and, and your heart and your mind, that's where we feed on spiritual things. And the more we hear the worldly kinds of things that are very subtle often, it steals our appetite for the things of God. And so when we find ourselves not having a real deep hunger for God, it's not that we've been satisfied. It's the opposite. It's that we've had subtle compromises over a long period of time and we lost our appetite for the things of God. And so there's always a solution. God says through his prophets, prophet Joel, rend your heart, not your garments, right? Cry out to the Lord. Deep repentance is needed. You know, first love, desire can be restored. I mean, when Jesus came to the churches of Revelation with fire in his eyes, he, he said some things very, very strong, and he, he gave some very affirming words and, and some very strong warnings, and they all have to do with communion with him, right? I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him, right? My soul shall be satisfied as with fat, rich food, David says. It's a spiritual feast that's displayed for us now by communing with God in this life. And we can cultivate it. Let's see some of the things that David says about cultivating this. David goes on to say that because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So David experienced God's steadfast love. He's not just talking about a theory. He's saying it's implied that he's experienced the steadfast love of the Lord, and it's better than life. And when we experience the steadfast love of the Lord, it produces in us a patience and a steadfast love toward others. That's the goal. That's what God is doing, showing us his love and acceptance that we show it to others that don't deserve it because we didn't deserve it. And so the, the difference between longing for righteousness and thinking that we're righteous is uh, this issue of true righteousness and self-righteousness. And it's a dangerous highway that we walk because we are being made righteous and we're called to walk in righteousness. But the indicator that we're walking in righteousness is that we're hungering and thirsting for it because we're looking at Jesus. We're not looking at ourselves and comparing ourselves to others. And that's when self-righteousness starts to set in. We start looking around at others and go, well, at least I'm not like that person. I pray, I fast, I tithe, you know? But we're like the man on the floor in Luke 18 where he won't even look up, but he beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And in that parable, Jesus says, that man went down justified and the other man went down condemned. And the most astounding thing is they were both standing at the sacrifice, they went down to the temple to pray. And they were looking at God's oracle, his living oracle, saying, you can't do it. I've given you a substitute. You need me. I've given you mercy. I don't delight in the sacrifice itself, but the mercy it reveals and the obedience it draws out of you. That's righteousness. Never 
focusing so much on ourself that we feel like we're doing pretty good, but always hungering and yearning, but in the hungering and yearning, knowing we're going to be satisfied. So we are walking in righteousness, but it's his righteousness. And we walk in the power of that righteousness as we resist sin, which is easily summed up in not loving God with our whole heart, soul, and mind, and not truly loving our neighbor as ourself. We have judgments and criticisms, withholdings, and a cold heart toward them, and expectations we put on them to see if they're fit for our love, etc. And this is where God says, no, 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 no. Hunger and thirst. It's where David says, your loving kindness, your steadfast love is better than life. It's better than life. And so David cultivated that. He says, so I'll bless you in verse 4. As long as I live, in your name I'll lift up my hands. <laughs> I'll lift up my hands. <laughs> Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about clothing and food. Is not life more than the body and more than food? And he goes on to say, more than money? Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Who can add anything to their life? Don't worry. Trust me, I clothe the field with lilies. I feed the birds. You will lack nothing. How much more value are you than a hundred sparrows or a thousand, whatever it says, I can't remember, but you're more valuable. <laughs> and God's thoughts toward you outnumber the sands on the seashore. Psalm 139. They really do. And, and our communion with God is not only telling God how much we love him and praising his majesty and his holiness and his great name, but it's also receiving from God how he feels about us. He made us in his image to bear it well. He made us to know full acceptance before him. Yeah, we look through a veil dimly at a mirror beholding the Lord, 2 Corinthians 3, but we're being transformed from glory to glory till the day he splits the sky and we're just like him. So pursue him through the veil that's been lifted because of Jesus, behold him, though dimly, and let him transform you. And the more he transforms you and you behold him, you bear the image of God because you're being renewed back into the image of the Lord's righteousness and holiness and truth, Colossians 3, because you're, you're putting off the old and you're, you're putting on the new actively. You're pursuing righteousness hungering and thirsting for it. And our good God, who's all-powerful and all-present and all-knowing, does that in a context of a relationship with you. You ever thought about that? Taking those big, grandiose theological terms, omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence, and realizing that God works those things on your behalf? Like, in his omnipotence, he became the lowly servant Jesus to display to us that his power is subdued to servitude to become a human being. His presence, he's with us wherever we go, strengthening us, calling us to do certain things to overcome temptations in the moment. He's always providing a way out. And not just because he's saying, tis, tis, stop doing that, I want you to be better. He's saying, no, I want you to know me. And if you know me, you'll be satisfied as though with fat food. You won't want this low base desire. This is our God, he's patient. He's omniscient. He knows everything about us. The one who loves you the most knows you the best. That's liberation. 
He knows every little thought that squeaks out that you don't like (laughs) and understands why. He knows your fears and your control that you want. He knows the insecurities, the abuse that's happened to you. He knows all those things. And still it's sin, right? But because it's sin, he, he invites you to confess it and to walk transparently in the light and be cleansed by his blood. To confess it and be cleansed from all unrighteousness. This is the kind of relationship David's talking about. He says, I remember you on my bed. I meditate on you in the watches of the night. I can't stop thinking about you. You're what I dream about, God. You're what I think about all night long. I remember 1998, my first year as a believer. I would go to sleep, and as I'm falling asleep, I just had my eyes closed. just felt the warmth of the smile of Jesus over my life. It was like he was right there in the room with me. That right there is exactly what we need to keep in touch with, is the simplicity of his joy over us as his creation. And then out of that, violently resist sin by his Spirit's power. We're to put to death by his Spirit what remains. What a joy to do it with God, to sow to the Spirit and not to the flesh and reap eternal life. And so we see that God is the one that upholds us, right? In in verse 8, it says, My soul clings to you, or it pursues you with determination is the, the idea of the word. It's the command that God gave in Deuteronomy to the people of Israel. May you cling to the Lord and love him and fear him. This is your life. That's the simplicity of the call of the people of Israel in Deuteronomy. And God says to us, pursue me with determination. Cling to me with your zeal, you know, produced by the Holy Spirit. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord, Romans 12. But then here's the clincher. Your right hand upholds me. We have a security in God's providential care over our life. And he cares about what goes into our eyes and into our ears and our minds and our hearts and what comes out our mouth. And he is providentially caring for us for our well-being, of our soul that happens from doing righteous things and surrendering to him and loving him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and body and strength, everything. And he also is protecting others from us, right? And so he's all about watching over us providentially, caring for us when we're rejected or hurt by others, that we learn to lean into him and look up to him and remember Jesus' suffering death on the cross. Remember the pain and agony of God who made us to live in his image in a garden in paradise in perfect communion and now sees people settling for less. He sees his own sons and daughters settling for less. And the the pain in God's heart saying, no, come draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. God's watching over us providentially. He cares, he provides, he sees, he knows, he understands. That's what upholds us, his right hand. While we pursue intimacy and zeal and passion to love him with our whole heart earnestly, earnestly. This is what transforms us. Uh, we, we can't argue <laughs> with atheists, right? But we shouldn't argue. We should have a, a conversation with them. We shouldn't banter with our politics. Those things don't produce change. We should know God 
and tell others about him. And this can powerfully happen as we, we know God and cultivate this intimacy with him. And so finally, David takes what seems to be a sudden whiplash. But in the context of Scripture, it makes a whole lot more sense. Understanding that the Psalms are prophetic, you know, they're prophecy. Uh, they're eschatological, which means they point to the ends of the age, the last things, the final plan for God's redemption. And they're messianic. Jesus is hidden throughout all the Psalms. Jesus himself showed his disciples in Luke 24 the things said about him in the Psalms, it says in Luke 24. And so um, the, the very fact that these Psalms are pointing to the end and they're messianic, sometimes David will say something and he, he means it, but it's also meaning something prophetically through the mouth of Jesus. So when David says things like, may people be slain, it's called imprecatory speech. He's speaking of something that God's going to do. It's not like David's just suddenly angry and he's calling down curses on people. David's agreeing with God's plan and saying it's just and true. So he's saying for people that don't have a restored relationship with God in this life, they'll be destroyed. They'll go to judgment. And we know from the scriptures it's the lake of fire. Revelation 21 says, all people who are immoral and idolatrous and all liars will have the suffering of the second death in the lake of fire. And so David's speaking ahead to what Jesus will do in the end when he comes in his second appearing. He will judge those who do not obey the gospel, do not know God. And so David's speaking of that reality. And so what we need to understand that in this life, in order to be satisfied by God, the only answer is what Jesus promised from the Father, and that's the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want to welcome uh, the worship team to make their way up to prepare uh, for closing. But uh, Jesus said to the woman at the well, you believe in me and you'll have living water springing up from the inside, right? And in John 7, he says to, G- to the people at the feast, whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, will have rivers of living water f- welling up to eternal life. And in those passages, he says, whoever believes in me will never be hungry and never thirst. The Holy Spirit of God brings us into communion with himself and the Father and the Son and each other. And the only satisfaction that we can have that can go deeper and deeper as sin gets grayer and fades away is a deeper connection with the Lord by faith. The connection's already there, but it's cultivating the awareness of all that we have in Christ and know our nearness and our access to him that gives us the strength to say no to the base things of this life. So would you pray with me in closing? Jesus, thank you so much for the simplicity of this call that you've given us. And that's that we, through the Spirit, by faith, would wait for the hope of righteousness. And that we know that love is to be displayed by serving one another. The outflow of receiving what your spirit fills our hearts with, the love of God that does not disappoint our hope. So that as you form, God, the character through trials and build in us endurance, we say, yes, fill us with your Holy Spirit and the love of God that does not disappoint our hope. And we thank you, Jesus, as we reflect that while we are still sinners, you died for us.
we say, yes, Lord. Lord, give us a hunger and a restlessness by your spirit this week. As we go back to our life, may we go back and not leave one stone unturned of where intimacy with you is being robbed, that we'd earnestly seek you and be satisfied as with fat, rich food. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to get prepared to do communion as the worship team plays, and there are four stations in your corners here to be able to go and get communion. So prepare your hearts uh, to partake in the Lord's Supper.